Hi, and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels, zooming out from thoughtful detail through to organizational transformation and on to changes in society and the world. My name is Andy Pollane. I'm a designer, educator, and writer, and currently group director of client evolution at Fjord. My guest today is Teresa Neal. She's the author of Mobile Design Pattern Gallery, published by O'Reilly, and co-author of Designing Web Interfaces, also by O'Reilly in 2009. She's the founder of Guidea, a 20-person UX design consultancy, serving lots of clients you will have heard of, such as Adobe, Bloomberg, eBay, Whole Foods, Johnson & Johnson, and PayPal. She was also named as one of the top designers in technology by Business Insider. Teresa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. I'm happy to be here. So one of the interesting things to hear, I think, especially for kind of people just coming into the industry, actually, are the sort of twists and turns people's careers have taken. And having stalked you on LinkedIn, um, it seems like you started something completely different from what you're doing now. So can you tell me a bit about that journey from there to here? I actually started off many years ago as a chef. And when I had my first child, the owner of the restaurant invited me to take maternity leave. And while I was out, if I wouldn't mind, go ahead and develop an inventory system for him. So I ended up creating an inventory system, got my hands kind of, you know, wet in the computer world, ended up going back to school and getting a degree in MIS and entered the IT space as a Java programmer back for the airline industry. And once I got involved in that, I realized I was not a great programmer. And I wasn't a great programmer because I was really, really interested in making the software work better, not behind the scenes, but right there on the screen. And so I cut my teeth at Sabre working for my role model, Bill Scott, who's also the co-author of the O'Reilly book we did years ago, and really started to learn about UX and UI and how to create enterprise software that could help people do their jobs more efficiently with less errors, less stress, and just overall a smoother experience in their day-to-day operations. So more recently, you've been working on digital therapeutics. Do you want to explain what it is you're actually doing? Because, you know, as a someone from service design in my background, I, I really like to think beyond digital products and think of them in, in terms of services. And it was one of the kind of regular stouches between UX and uh, service design is, is about which one is the kind of meta one. But so you've come from, I guess, that UX background, but you're working on these things that go way beyond what most people would think of as kind of UX. Yeah, definitely. So we started this company, Guidea, almost 15 years ago. And at the very beginning, we had a lot of clients that came to us and said, make these screens for us, right? It's very much about like designing the UI based on what the founder or the product owners decided they had in mind. And over time, it's evolved and UX has become much more ingrained in the organization. We're helped driving the strategy. And now we're, we're spending a lot of time in the field doing research to inform the future of products. And one of the nice turns of events that has happened over the past couple of years is we went from doing a lot of pharma adherence apps where a pharma company would say, you know, we've got basically a We want to create a point app. So for each and every one of our pharmaceuticals, we want an app that um, people can install on their phone and use to track their medication. Sometimes it may also be used to track their symptoms, whether they're improving or, or worsening. And those apps 
while interesting to make, and I've learned a lot about you know many different chronic illnesses, didn't really seem to change people's behaviors, right? Um, just saying, okay, uh, let's say you have epilepsy, you need to take your medication every day, here's an app to track that. That wasn't moving the needle on people changing their behavior to take their medication. So what we found was people who had epilepsy and who had daily medications had already come up with systems for taking them at the right time. You know, some people would put them in their pocket and if the the medication was still there later, they realized they'd forgotten to take it and they would take it at some point during the day. You know, other people have the little pill boxes. And so these apps weren't really changing people's behaviors. And I was getting to a point of, you know, frustration, right? Also, the, the pharma companies in developing these point systems are point apps apps, right, one for each illness or one for each medication, we're kind of overlooking that larger issue that uh, many people with chronic illnesses have comorbidities. They may have both diabetes and high blood pressure, or they may be dealing with depression and anxiety and insomnia. And you wouldn't certainly wouldn't want to have an app for every single one of those medications or every single one of those conditions. So that means that up until then, they were basically treating each thing as a separate product and therefore in the same way they would have different literature or materials or leaflets and stuff for those things that that became the app. And when you say the point-based things, do you mean they were sort of, what do you mean by that exactly? Oh yeah, thanks for asking. I think that might be insider jargon. Basically, um, it's one app per medication or per disease as opposed to thinking about a holistic platform or uh, application suite that would help people with their overall health, right? Not just to manage one of their many medications. Right. So where did you end up going with that? Yeah. So right at that point of you know, complete frustration with this, and we were starting to wonder if we should even take any more projects like this, we were approached by a company called WellDoc, who was pioneering digital therapies. So they had the first FDA-approved prescription application for type 2 diabetes, meaning that if you had type 2 diabetes and you went into your physician, they may prescribe a medication to you as well as prescribing this application to use. And so the early application had gone through a number of clinical trials and people using this digital therapeutic on their phone were shown to lower their A1C levels, which is a key indicator for diabetes, by two points, which are around two points, which is really quite substantial, right? And all of a sudden we were intrigued. We're like, wait a second, there's a way to create an app that actually changes people's behavior. And Andy, I've heard you talk about kind of the dark patterns of design around behavior change. And of I, behavioral design. Yeah, exactly. Of behavioral design. Yeah. And I think this is an example of using that same methodology to really help people improve their physical health. So can I get you to unpack behavioral design before you go on to kind of tell me about exactly what you did or maybe use that as an example? Because what my understanding of behavioral design, and I know a lot of it, it was um, used quite a lot in government and in public services in the mid-2000s and the whole kind of nudge book about kind of pushing and the BJ Fogg stuff of pushing people's kind of habits around the place. And of course, the dark patterns I'm talking about are you know, smartphone addiction, as we all know now, engagement is a 
synonym for addiction, really. And so it's been used in a lot of quite negative ways to kind of get people just to, you know, keep scrolling on Instagram or just check one more time and, and you know, keep people engaged with apps and services. But I can kind of see that in this kind of environment, that actually that might be quite useful for once. Yeah, definitely. The products that we have in the digital therapy space are usually designed in conjunction with a clinician who has a specialization in the area, such as, you know, somebody with a, a sleep background working on the insomnia app. But we also collaborate with people who are cognitive behavior therapists. And these folks are giving us information, tips, tricks around ways to elicit first and foremost engagement with the product because we won't have behavior change unless we have people engaging. But in this case, it's positive engagement. We want people coming to the app, not because we're trying to make money off of them from ads, but because they'll be able to get up-to-date health information and prompts of things that they can do throughout their day to improve their health. So first and foremost, we need that engagement. And then once we have them in the app, we need to provide a way for them to interact and get immediate real-time feedback to start changing their behavior. So an example of this in the Insomnia app that we created is that we are providing education through a nine-week program. Again, this is a product that's gone through clinical trials that's shown to decrease insomnia in like 95% of the people who, who use the program. And so the first thing that we do is we provide the educational materials. Like these are the things you need to know about good sleep hygiene. But then from there, the real-time feedback is really key to getting people to change their behaviors. So there are prompts throughout the day helping them get their behaviors aligned with things that are going to help them go to sleep on time and stay asleep. So for example, the user may opt in to get reminders about, you know, this is a this is a good time to wrap up your meals for the evening, or this is um, a good time to stop drinking coffee today, right? Like probably no cups of coffee afternoon. Again, these are things people are opting into. We're not trying to nag them, but when they're motivated to change their behaviors, these types of prompts are, are really helpful. Then at the point of time that they're actually going to go and uh, lay down in bed, the phone sensors are able to check the noise levels, the light levels and provide immediate feedback saying, oh, you know, the light level is really high in here. And that is something that we know is going to impact your sleep quality. So, you know, it provides immediate feedback around darkening the room, lessening the noise, perhaps reminds people to keep their pets off the bed or whatever, whatever feedback that we're trying to give to help them through this part of their nine-week program. So cognitive behavioral therapy and CBT is, it works by trying to intervene in the usual patterns in your day, as far as I understand it. My wife's a psychologist, she'll probably be able to tell me better. Because when it's used in, in therapeutically, a lot of it is about then catching yourself in in those patterns and reminding yourself, oh, I'm, I'm reacting this way and therefore trying to kind of become more mindful of it really and, and change those patterns. That was my understanding of it. So tell me if I'm wrong. So what you're saying here is that the app is doing this digitally on your behalf, but also taking in extra data from around in the environment to help you do that, that you might have kind of missed yourself. 
Exactly. And to take it a step further, we worked with a group out of Yale Medical to create a product for parents whose children are on the autism spectrum. And in this case, we're not creating a cognitive behavior therapy for the children. We're teaching the parents how to do CBT with their children because there's just a lack of available uh, therapist available for parents to take their kids into. And since parents spend so much of their time with their children, Having parents, even with a light or low degree of the CBT training, is going to make a big difference in getting nonverbal kids on the spectrum to be verbal. So in that app, instead of the phone using sensors to see what's going on around you, the parent's actually turning to the phone, the product on the phone, to get advice. So for example, there's that base education level, right? So people can become fluent in the terminology that's being used and when to use different techniques in in certain situations. But on a day-to-day level, imagine you have a small child who's reaching up for an apple and they're going, uh, uh. Uh, And the app actually will have a little video that coaches the parent for, okay, first thing you're going to do is prompt the child to use their words. And so now the mom would be like, okay, what is it that you want? And the child might still go, uh, uh, uh. And the parent's like, okay, well, I didn't get him to use the word. What's next? So then the app is telling them, oh, well, in this case, now you can model it. So now the mom turns to the child and says, are you wanting an apple? And the kid goes, uh. Uh, uh. And then the app goes back and tells the mom, okay, if you're still not getting it, the next thing to do is now model it and point, right? So the CBT is training the parent to do the CBT with their child. And that one has been a really interesting product to create because it's helping parents, as far as we can tell from the user testing that we've done, it's helping parents in times of high need where there's uh, real frustration because when you have a child on the spectrum like I do, there's points where the temper tantrums feel like a bit much. You feel kind of overwhelmed or I feel I have felt kind of overwhelmed or alone and being able to turn to something. I don't have to call a doctor. I don't have to go find a book. I've got my phone right there and it's got videos to help me through uh, these most common situations. And at that same time, I know that I'm doing something better for my child. I definitely would consider that like a positive pattern of engagement and behavior change. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. I can imagine it makes a, a huge difference. And in those situations is, I mean, it is the intention that you know, parents would look at these videos and prior to kind of the event or how much is it intended that you'd be sort of turning to it at that moment of kind of stress? That's a really good question. So in my example, you probably wouldn't be trying to interact with your child and look at the phone at the same time. There's a curriculum for the parents to work through each week. Right. So a lot of these programs are set up like the diabetes programs, like a 12 week challenge and then moves into maintenance mode. The insomnia one is nine weeks. The autism spectrum parent coaching is another multi-month program. So there are lessons that are to be consumed each week. And that's when we have to use some of those engagement tricks to make sure people are coming back in and learning. Because even if they're just a few minute videos, it's hard for people to make the time. So we need to kind of stay in front of that and get those in front of people. But then I'm so glad you asked this because there's a second key component to all of these digital therapies. And that is having the real-time coach available. So 
the phone may be doing using the sensors to deliver messages like, oh, you know, it's too loud in here and the lights are really high. How about we get these things addressed before you try to go to sleep? But there's also a real live person available in many of these products that let's say the parent would be able to turn to. So say they've encountered a temper tantrum, the likes of which they've never seen before, right? And none of the previous videos they've viewed covers it. They can reach out to their coach and get the support that they need around at that point in time. Oh, that's amazing. So this would be what the sort of prescription would also be covering, presumably, is, is that kind of extra support, I would hope. I don't know. The American um, health system is a mystery to me. Yeah, I can't speak to exactly how all of these are rolled out through the different insurance companies and employers, but that would be the goal. One of the projects that we're working on right now that I am absolutely most excited about is a pilot project for a large pharma company who has decided to pioneer a combination of medication plus digital therapy in the weight management space and run a pilot to see do people do better on just medication or just the behavior change, the CBT product, right? Or what does it look like when people are using both? And so that pilot's kicking off next year. And I think this will, if it's successful, I think this will likely transform how we approach medicine. I think, again, if this is successful, we're going to see a huge uptake in digital therapies combined with prescriptions. And there's a new term for that called pharmacotherapy. And I'm super optimistic about it and really excited to see how it unfolds because I would love for our, at least in the U.S., things to change instead of, you know, you go into a doctor and you get a prescription. Instead, it would be you go into the doctor, they look at the larger picture. They see if there's a digital therapy available to help you help yourself. And then they look at the combination of prescription uh, that you may also need, right? So I think this is transformative. So, I mean, you know, I think I can see the also the benefits of simply just not taking as many medications, right, if you don't need to. And you mentioned the comorbidity thing before. For people who don't know the jargon, it's when someone has more than one condition, which is quite often the case, which means you end up having to take multiple medications and sometimes you end up having to take medications to counteract the interactions between the medications and it might get really complicated. And it's interesting because obviously part of the way the placebo effect works is kind of CBT in the sense that you know you're kind of, or at least you think, you believe you're you're interrupting your kind of usual patterns in in many ways. So it'll be fascinating to see how the the trial comes out. It'd be very, very interesting to, if the um, the digital therapeutic actually was on its own, was doing better than the... Um, the medication on its own but i guess it would massively depend on on the particular condition so um you've obviously learned quite a lot about these and uh, we sort of talked about the dark side before a little bit of behavioral design and how it's it's been used for engagement you know as you said to sort of sell people ads or kind of make them buy more gold coins in the game or whatever there's a thing that's kind of gone on in the whole sort of mindfulness space and there's all the sort of meditation apps and so forth where they also do this but they can kind of start to come a, become a bit annoying a bit there's like a, a counteract their intent which is you know you get a notification saying you know when was the last time you meditated now would be a good time to breathe and you think ah you know just <laughs> you, you're just stressing me out um what have you found out about those kinds of interactions going on because i can imagine that there's a point where 
and the notifications keep coming about, you know, taking medication and so on and so forth. You could just go, do you know, I've, particularly if you've got several medications, I'm getting barraged with these nudges all the time. In fact, I'm going to block. I'm just going to start ignoring them or, or switch them off the way we we do with many other apps. You're totally right, and I think this is where the UX comes back towards service design. So it's not enough to design a product that is engaging and has good usability for, let's say, tracking meds or providing real time you know, feedback about lowering the lights or even, you know, great video design to engage moms and dads to watch these instructional videos. We have to step completely back and look at the entire user journey. And that involves not just when they have the app in their hand, but all of the other information that they're receiving from the point of learning about this to getting, let's say, uh, onboarded. What do those welcome emails look like if there are welcome emails? What's going to happen as they start turning on notifications and reminders? On a number of these products in the early days when we launched them, we couldn't figure out why all the work wasn't moving the needle on engagement. And we realized, well, we've realized a a whole bunch of different things, but um, one of them is you've got to have a great content matrix and you have to have all the rules documented about what notifications coming when. In one of the early products that we did, we realized that people were getting no less than, I think it was six emails the day that they registered. Six emails. Uh, All of them said something different. All of them had a different call to action. And that was because, not because the company was bad, but because, you know, one group handled marketing and then in a siloed group, there was somebody providing tech support and they sent out an email. And then there was the automatic email that the that was delivered that the engineers had written and all of them conflicted with each other, right? And at that point, you're like, oh, just leave me alone, right? Even before the notifications on the phone started, it was just like, why do I have all these emails? Another thing that we learned once we had... Um, come up with a, a content matrix and a full service blueprint of what the experience was going to be like uh, for the user on all of the different channels. We somehow forgot to hand that to QA or something. So like there was a ball was dropped. And so what happened is we released the next version of the product and we still didn't really move the engagement needle. And we're like, well, we just did all this work. What's going on? Well, QA wasn't aware of all of the um, rules we had put in place and the expectations. And so they weren't testing it to confirm that these things were working. So for example, in one of the products that we did in day one, there was a really important uh, metric that the user needed to capture through their own personal testing. And if we had that metric, we'd be able to get a baseline and drive future engagement. The prompt wasn't being delivered to the user until day 46. We needed it on day one, but QA didn't know when we needed it. So uh, basically what we learned is you got to step way far back, look at this from a service design perspective, really have all the channels mapped out and make sure we're not over communicating and that the communication we're doing is coherent and consistently driving people towards that one call to action we need them to take and then also communicate that with the QA team so that they ensure that what gets built follows the model that we all agreed to put in place. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously I agree on the service design thing, but I think that that point about context and understanding, you know, we, if you're lucky, you, you talk about the context of someone's 
action or job that they're doing at that time. But um, quite often people miss the context of where people are physically, for example. So if you're in a, I can imagine if you're in a profession where being constantly kind of notified is, a, is actually problematic, you can't just keep putting your phone out your pocket or whatever, that's a problem. But also the sort of context, the ecosystem of the device itself, because you may have, you know, several things triggering all the time. And so I've got a, I've, on that front, I have a possibly politically difficult question for you to answer, which is, you were talking about working for one particular pharmaceutical company, um, you know, on, and I'm sure you've worked for many, but each one has its own turf. And they can obviously create a, or be mindful of a kind of ecosystem within their own products and services that they offer. But often uh, patients will have products from different companies as part of their entire uh, treatment plan. Is there any appetite to try and make some kind of cross-brand or cross-company therapeutics there that sort of avoid every company trying to kind of shout loudness for their therapy? I think that is... The gold standard. So we've been working with a small company called Compassware, who has created a health platform. And so it's agnostic of the company who's issuing the medication. Uh, It's agnostic of the insurance company. It's really centered around the patient. And when you start looking at it from the platform perspective, I think we started doing this three or four years ago, it all kind of starts to make sense. Imagine if you're dealing with uh, depression and insomnia and weight management issue. Well, from what I learned in working on the insomnia project, the lack of sleep is the base of all of this, right? So there's really, and I'm not a doctor, uh, not telling people how to approach their their medical problems, but what I heard was got to tackle that sleep problem before you try to tackle the depression and the weight issues, right? We've got to get enough sleep and then we can move on and tackle those next things. So you wouldn't want to, we wouldn't want somebody to come in and say, I'm going to tackle these three problems today. You know, please make sure I get reminders on all fronts. That would just, it would be overwhelming, right? And it's, and it's not an effective approach, but if you have it all on a single platform, then we can start driving the messaging towards whatever the clinicians and the CBTs advise is going to be best for somebody who's wanting to address these three issues. What's the main call to action that we should get them to do? And that I'm just guessing would be, let's focus on sleep. So we get them through the sleep program. At the same time, we can be cognizant that they're dealing with these other issues, but we don't try to tackle it all at once. Whereas you can imagine if you were taking a weight drug from Novo and a depression medication from Amgen and, you know, whatever, you know, then you would have three different applications and, and it would be overwhelming and inconsistent. But once we start looking at it as a platform, all of a sudden, it makes sense. You might get a single reminder in the in the morning to take your morning medications, and a single reminder in the evening to you know record your food for the day. Oh, and make sure you know that we aim to be done with meals by whatever six p.m. Right. So all of those messages can be consolidated and be very thoughtful and targeted to actually get that behavior change. So you've got quite a lot of things where the end user is is providing some kind of information or is asked to provide some kind of information or kind of feedback into it. And presumably there's, there's some things about how they're feeling as well as they're tracking their food or uh, there's all sorts of sort of automatic stuff. And I'm guessing wearables of some kind might feed into that. 
Obviously, there are very strict rules about um, and laws about patient data and and data privacy. But are you also able to kind of spot patterns in anonymized usage that become start to create a kind of positive feedback loop in in terms of the way you can then kind of rethink or redesign things? Definitely. So the key to many of these successful digital therapies is having both the real time feedback and the overall trend insight. So real-time feedback might be like, say I'm diabetic, I have a cinnamon roll, my blood glucose goes through the roof, I'm told immediately, get some water, start walking, test your BG again in 15 minutes, right? So it's real-time feedback in the moment. The trend insights is where we can look and see what people are doing let's say over the week, like, oh, Teresa, looks like you, uh, you tend to have a lot of, a lot of carbs on the weekend. You're doing really good during the week. Um, but on the weekend, we, we see these spikes. Here are some suggestions. You know, it looks like you're, you're eating out at these places. Here's some low carb suggestions, right? So we've got those trends and insights. Now, layer on the big data or the machine learning around that anonymized data, then we can start to um, make the recommendations around the trends that we're seeing on individuals, make recommendations that are valid to them. So, you know, other, I'm just going to make this up, but like other people who also struggle with high carb intake on the weekends tend to get good results by whatever, I don't know, increasing their steps or yeah, doing X, Y, Z. And that in itself is a little bit of gamification, right? You're encouraging people through a little bit of, a little bit of peer pressure. Um, But you're also in the case of health, you know, giving people ideas of things that they could do to help them in their wellness journey. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting because I was thinking about exactly that case when I asked you that question and and it was interesting to see you go there because, you know, one of the, you know, one of the behavioral nudges that gets used, everyone knows the Amazon, you know, people who bought this also bought that. Um, or but these two are frequently bought together and stuff, but which usually ends up, you know, just making you buy more stuff. I can see how it could be very useful. Um, probably in sort of, you know, in some situations, it's, it is a bit of peer pressure, like, yeah, okay, I really shouldn't have eaten that cinnamon scroll. But in other things, I can imagine it's also uh, useful for people to feel like, oh, I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. And other people kind of, have this issue or other people aren't perfect either. And, and um, so I can really kind of imagine how that would work well. And, you know, a lot of these small things, they make a big difference. And um, coming, we're sort of coming up to time. I have one last question for you, which I don't know if you know the Ray and Charles Eames film called Powers of Ten. It's about, it's about the relative sizes of things in the universe. And it, it's a sort of movie they made in the 70s. And it really kind of shows you how quickly as they zoom out from just a meter above someone to a 10 meters to a hundred meters, very quickly you end up in the universe and then back in the other way. And so my final question is always, what one small thing do you think has an outsized effect on the world or on life that either is really well designed or really needs to be redesigned? In this space, I think the most undervalued but most impactful thing we can do in designing the digital therapies is considering integration to lower the burden on people to enter data. So any of the times that we've been able to pull sensor information from the device 
or from a wearable or integrate with an existing health app already on their phone or integrate with a pharmacy to pull all of their medications, again, with their permission. Anything that we are able to do where we tighten the integration and reduce the burden on the patient or the user to have to type things in really allows us to capture so much more data, not for the sake of capturing data for pharma or for the insurance company, but for understanding those trends in order to provide relevant messages back to people to help them improve their health. I think that's that's really key. There's a product out there that allows quick pharmacy integration. If the app owner chooses to, they just provide a username and password to get to their pharmacy and it imports all of their prescription information. And that can save upwards of like 30 data entry screens. And we know that once people have entered in their prescription information, that we're going to be able to give them a much better experience and help them on their wellness journey. So I think that's a huge one. I think that was a really innovative product that's out there that improves the experience for everybody trying to use these products. Yeah, I can imagine. And even something, even just kind of single bits of data entry are, you know, the, the barriers to people bothering to do that don't have to be very high before they just go, oh, I just can't be bothered. Because it, again, it's just one more thing amongst a whole lot of other things they have to do. Exactly. Um, it's been very, very fascinating to hear about all of this. And um, I'm really interested to see how that trial goes as well. Um, where can people find you? People can find you on Guidea. And it's Guidea, it's it's a combination of guide and idea If you for people to spell it. Now, where else can you be found online? I'm also under Teresa Neal on LinkedIn, and we are launching our new Guidea Medium blog. So maybe take a look out for that in 2020, and we can provide updates on that pilot study as well as some of the other projects we're working on. Brilliant. So we'll put some links to the show notes to uh, Guidea and also to Teresa on LinkedIn. Teresa, thank you very much for being my guest on Power of 10. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening to Power of 10. If you want to learn more about other shows on the This Is HCD network, visit thisishcd.com where you'll find ProdPod with Adrian Tan, Ethnopod with Dr. John Curran, and Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scullion. You'll also find the transcripts and links mentioned in the show and where you can also sign up to our newsletter, join our Slack channel to connect with other designers all around the world. My name is Andy Pallain. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.